0: Embrace the rebels within us and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. We are here doing another episode of conversations on race, privilege, and inclusion. My guest today is really special to me. He is actually the reason why this whole thing got started because of a conversation he and I had that just opened my mind and got me present to, I wanna say like who I was being about it, how it was showing up, the ways I could get involved, ways I could use my voice, my platform, um, to actually create conversation, to create empathy. So if you've been listening to these, you kind of know what they're about. They're not the truth. There are perspectives. My intention here is to get to see through the eyes of someone who lives different than us. Now, different means a lot of different things, right? In this conversation, it's racially different, but sometimes different means man, woman. Sometimes it means gender. Sometimes it means religion. And my hope is that through hearing someone's story, hearing what they've gone through, hearing how they learned about their race, their gender, their sex and whatnot, we can actually empathize. We can connect. We can understand that our, the way we see the world, our reality is not the truth. The way that um, an example I love to give is when I get pulled over by the police, I'm only worried about getting a ticket and like, shit, my insurance is going to go up. And I know that Different people, especially black men, have a very different experience when they get pulled over. And I think we can extend this to different things, like you're walking through a parking lot as a man, you've probably never been afraid that someone was going to jump out, grab you and rape you. But as a woman, that's a conversation that might be in your head. And what must that be like? I was just having a conversation with a friend recently, and he had to explain to his kids who are half white, half black, what was going on. And the kid's first reaction was, are grandma and grandpa going to die? And besides that being heartbreaking, like I have I likely will, ne- might never have to have a conversation like that. And that is a blind spot of privilege that I have. And my hope here is that we can see where we are privileged and remember privilege isn't a bad thing, it's just a thing, but that we can see it so we can have, again, more empathy, more compassion, more understanding, and really more connection. So my guest today is my coach. She's been probably my coach for about three years. He's also a program leader with accomplishment coaching. He wrote a book called The Brink. He coaches CEOs. He coaches companies. He works with individuals. Um, We'll get into a lot of the things that he's done on this podcast because he's done a lot that, that tie into this conversation, but it's just really an honor to have him here because I asked him about two or three weeks ago what it was like to be him in the climate and the world that we were in. I just wanted to know what it felt like because I knew that I could never feel like that. And I wanted to understand. And he, his sharing just cracked my heart open. Um, And it just got me to see things I had never seen or even thought about, which got me to start this, got me to write a, um, something that's going to be a podcast, but I'm trying to get submitted to newspapers. And uh, I'm just, I just feel like very grateful that you're here. Mark Hunter. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having this conversation, Alex. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've kind of started every single one of these with like the awkwardness of being a white guy who's asking people that are different. Right. So far, there's been a couple of African-Americans. There's been an Asian-American. I'm working on some people that are that identify differently in, in terms of the sex or gender. And it's it's there's nothing wrong with the uncomfort. But I, I'm always curious about what it feels like on the other side, right? Because of your skin color, I'm like asking you to have a conversation about it. What does it feel like on the other side of the conversation?
1: <laughs> um, while it's not comfortable, I think that the experience is of, of, uh, of an experience of, of finally, you know, like these questions are finally being asked. And they're being asked perhaps because of some of the circumstances happening in the world. But, you know, especially when someone you care about and you've got a relationship with, who's white asks me this question now. I'm like, finally, like now, like, like someone actually is interested and wants to hear. And yeah, so the experiences of, of, uh, of relief and, and opportunity and hey, to your point, it's not comfortable.
0: What do you, you know, you shared something with me that like, it's the thing that's stuck out more than anything that you shared with me through your experience and what you've seen and, and through history nothing changes until white people are uncomfortable. And that was like a cage rattler. Like I went, wait, what do you, like in my head it was like, what do you mean? And then I thought right about how, and it's not just with black and white issues. It's, it's kind of all issues. Can you, can you break that down and like explain that? Cause it's your perspective. It's your
1: idea. Right. Yeah. And thanks for saying that. Cause it is just my perspective, but you know, recent events um, uh, with George Floyd's murder and, all the, um, the protesting and the civil unrest in the streets, uh, you know, it's, it's actually got the conversation driven up. Um, but we have to remember that, that his name is on a long list of names of African-American men who've been murdered by police unarmed specifically, um, African-American men. And the, the aftermath of those is typically some Outrage mostly on social media or Facebook, and there's a Black Lives Matter uh, flag put in someone's, um, you know, profile picture. So and then then it dissipates over the next week or two. In fact, so much so that we don't even usually uh, have as big a conversation about whether the officers were uh, convicted or not, as we do about some of the just the the upset about it happening. But then it goes away. Um, I think what makes this different, this event uh, specifically with George Floyd, is that um, that the protests became unruly and widespread enough that uh, that it, it passed a critical mass. And I think that's really key. It passed a critical mass where it became uncomfortable for those people in America who have the privilege of being able to ignore uh, or go back to life as usual uh, when something like this happens. And at this time, it, that wasn't possible. And those people are predominantly white people. And... Uh, what I notice is, and have noticed over my forty-nine years of life, is that the big changes that happen in our country, in particular, happen when specifically our white population gets uncomfortable in some way, shape, or form, either either fiscally or socially, uh, or some combination of the two. And and here, there's actually a, another layer of it, which which is personal safety got threatened, right? The personal comfort, personal safety was threatened. I mean, there's you know there's these protests, you call them riots or whatever you want, out there in the streets are happening outside of everyone's door almost right now, not just um, isolated in the city where it happened or in certain neighborhoods. And, and that's making people, and particularly white people, uncomfortable in a way that I haven't seen much in my life, <laughs> to be honest. And and it's causing things to change. now. You know, we're by far, far from done with the changes that need to happen in this country. But, but there have been some significant changes that have happened in just two weeks of this level of civil unrest. And, and my experience slash opinion about that is that it's because we reached that critical mass and it made enough white people in this country uncomfortable.
0: How do you differentiate the difference between, and just for you, like the difference between placating, like we're creating stuff to like make it simmer it down, make it go away, get back to comfort versus like real change? Cause when we look back at history, there's a lot of things that happened. And as I heard an the I heard the child of an 89-year-old African-American man say, in his 89 years, nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. And that that shook me too. But and there, a lot of things have happened, right? There's been a lot of laws and policies and procedures. Do you have any, like a thought
1: or an opinion on that? I do. You know, how do I differentiate between placating and actual change, specifically social change, is that, um, that the level of discomfort is maintained until the the social order changes. So a lot of the examples that we've talked about here, like, you know, black men murdered by police or things that have happened – that have created civil unrest, they die down pretty quickly after, and when they die down, all the possible opportunities for change and reform die with that, that sort mm-hmm. of uh, noise dying down. So uh, I think that when you, can, when you can see a specific shift or change in a social order or in, um, or in, in social policy that's concrete, I think that's when you can see real change happening. The placating is actually the thing that I think is is dangerous. The placating is where there's, um, you know, for example, uh, the officers in this case so far have been charged. Now, at first they were charged, uh, especially the the principal officer was charged with third degree murder, which is completely insufficient. But, you know, a few days later, after enough civil unrest, those charges were up to second degree murder and the rest of the, um, the rest of the officers were charged. Now, the challenge is that that sounds good, and it is good. Is it moving in the right direction? But if it doesn't turn into convictions and jail time, commensurate yeah. with, with murder, then it's just placating. And that, I think that's the difference, is when you, when you actually see that there are consequences for people who are in a privileged position of power, not just for the victims on the street, then I think that's when you start to see there being really changed, specifically with this issue. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So it's when I hear that, I'm like, man, we, there's a long road. Because this is not, you know, we don't see trials happen next week. That's just not how it works, right? So there's investigations and there's all sorts of things. And trials for these
1: things could be a year from now. That's right. That's right. And so the this the level of, of the, the danger of that with that amount of time is that the comfort level could come back. Yeah. And, and especially if people are sort of arguing for their comfort to come back, right? Let's just get everything back to normal. Let's just, you know, yeah. everybody calm down get out of the streets and let's placate folks so that they stop protesting and then things quiet down. And then the, it's easy for that to become, you know, something that gets drowned out by the 24 hour news cycle and forgotten about. Yeah. So the importance I think here is that, uh, that, that the, the amount of, of upset and outrage be maintained, but it has to be maintained over a long period of time. This is a marathon to your point, not a sprint.
0: Yeah. And it's what, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of things being one way or essentially, or like a drip down things like evolving from the thing before, but never actually changing. It's like, um, I'm curious about your, you know, you've been talking about society more just now, but I'm curious about your experience with race, like growing up, like were there conver- you know, I never had to have a conversation about my race. I never had to have a conversation about dealing with police officers, which is something that I didn't even, th- I would have thought was normal. You know, to me, it's authority, be polite, don't be an asshole. Um, <laughs> but like, that was just kind of common. That's just like what my parents taught me to be with any authority figure, right? A teacher, a principal, a cop. But what I'm learning in through doing these and through reading and whatnot is that there's actually some groups have, their par- parents have conversations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any like stories, or you know, your earliest memories of realizing that hey, like, there's something different?
1: Yeah, I I have too many stories for the amount of time we have here about uh, what I was taught, um, but I can share some of the big ones. You know, specifically from my parents, uh, and 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 just keep in mind as I tell you this that the that these were these lessons were taught to me the same way most parents teach you to cross the street and look both ways or, you know, wash your hands before you eat. It was just flat and normal and commonplace. It wasn't I don't know that fun. people were taught to wash your hands before you eat. I think that's why. Well, they, <laughs> they are now. <laughs> they are now. <laughs> but but that, it, was, it was taught with that level of normalcy. So one of them was that the police are not your friend. So, so I was specifically taught to stay out of and away from trouble. But if you get in trouble, that the police are not the place to go. Um, so in my lifetime I can't recall a time that I've called the police because I need them uh, just because I was taught that. So the other one was, and it's sort of akin to that is to make sure that you don't make white people uncomfortable. And this is white men and women. This is, you know, make sure you don't make white people uncomfortable because they are going to perceive you as a threat if they get uncomfortable around you and you will never be believed over their fear. So if I make someone scared and the police are called that I will never be believed if, um, if, if it becomes my word against theirs, no matter what the situation. Uh, So I was just taught that flatly. And, you know, the, the, it it evolves over time, Alex, into some things like um, something called code switching. Are you familiar with that term code switching? Uh, What is that? Code switching is where, uh, (laughs) where you start to use language, um, dependent upon who you're talking to, you talk, start to use uh, colloquial, colloquialisms, excuse me, uh, colloquialisms and specific um, slang and ways of speaking, depending upon who you're talking to. So, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and you know I grew up uh, with my mother constantly correcting my English. Now, you can't; most people don't know that I'm from Brooklyn because I don't have a Brooklyn accent. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went to college and I'm well-educated, but I don't speak with that accent because my mother sort of trained it out of my brother and I, because she was clear that, that, that way of speaking, right. Using slang, uh, you know, speaking, um, like she used to call it like, like we live in the ghetto, like speaking like that, uh, would have me be not, um, not only not accepted in the world, but also put me in danger. So, you know, learning to code switch means that when I'm speaking with with white people, I'm speaking with clients, I'm speaking with police officers who pull me over, I'm speaking very eloquently and clearly so that I don't make them uncomfortable with the way I speak even. When I talk to my brother now, I slip back into it very easily. We we talk and you, you can tell we're from Brooklyn, but but it's it's something that I was taught as a survival skill, not as a not as to get ahead in business or any of that stuff, but Here's the way to stay out of trouble. Um, learn to speak in a way that makes them comfortable. So those are, you know, just to give you a sense, those are some of the the lessons I was taught. And they're all inside that conversation about white comfort and and making sure that white people aren't uncomfortable with you.
0: And your experience, like with your parents, I don't know a lot about your parents, but they're both right, they're both educated, they both had good jobs. Like you grew up, the neighborhood you grew up in wasn't always the best you've shared with me. But like your parents, like they had their shit together, for lack of a better word, and they raised you guys. And I'm, so I'm curious where their
1: stories came from. Like, where were yeah. those? Do you know the answer to that? I do. Well, both of them were the first and only, at that point, um, people in their families to go to college. Um, so that a big deal they... At that, that, time. Time. that would have been a huge deal. Huge
0: deal. But that would have been a really big deal at that point.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this, I'm 49, so this was back in the 70s and 80s. I was growing up in New York City. So their experience came from where they grew up. My mother grew up in Binghamton, New York. My father grew up in Louisiana. And uh, both being African-American, they, you know, they, they grew up, my father grew up in um, in segregated, the segregated South. I mean, there were white drinking fountains and colored drinking fountains and, you know, that for everything. And, you know, he lived through all that. So... His experience comes from, you know, his experience growing up and living in the South in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, my mother from Binghamton. And both of them actually met in New York, New York City. And, you know, simply from having their life experiences as kids, but also uh, having grown up as adults in New York City, uh, you know, they, they got to see the interactions between African-Americans and police. And, you know, noticing how the black community was perceived by the people they worked with, because they were both they were both bankers. They both worked in banks and and the way they were perceived at the office and the way they saw people perceived on the street. Uh, that's where some of their experience came from. And, and look, the, you know, my, my mother's uh, my mother was adamant that we go to college. In fact, it wasn't a question. It was a, you know, which college are you going to go to? Not are you going to go to college? Because she felt like without it that I would. Um, I would be more at risk mm-hmm. in, in a sense. So education became a way of, of protecting um, me and my brother from, um, you know, from being related to in a way that was threatening to sure. the world. Like being an uneducated black man in America is a dangerous thing to be.
0: You, since, you, since you went to college, I'm curious. I never had thought this was a thing. I'm reading a book called Boys and Sex. And it's, it's all about the men's relationship and where it comes from, and it goes into adolescence. And the author does this really cool thing where, at one point, she's talking to two African American, or she's doing this, she's studying, and she's studying their relationship to college, which is where we learn so much about sex. And they get into this idea that, you know, when, as an African American man on a college campus, unless you're on a, at a black college, you're highly a minority. And there's a very there's a big difference between how you're received on campus and she lays them out um and and a lot of it they talk about dating like dating mm-hmm. white women and, and how black women are perceived and how it's different i'm curious without sharing all the things she put in what that experience was like for you if, if there was anything that was unique or different
1: yeah well it's interesting because you haven't grown up in new york city i i I got to be around black people, white people, everything in between. So I had an experience of a diverse community that, you know, that I don't think everybody gets to have. So when I went to school, it was ironically less diverse than (laughs) where I grew up. Um, So I was a a drastic minority at at school. I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and um, it's a very liberal school, but didn't have a very large African-American community at the time. Um, so my experience was uh, being surprised and noticing how segregated it was. You know, the, the African-American people hung out here. The, you know, the Asians hung out over there. The white people went and did that. And so it was uh, it actually was much more segregated than even Brooklyn was for me at the time. And I went to a big public high school in Brooklyn. And, uh, and there were more kids in my, uh, in my school, in my high school than at, in my college, and that, so i had a, I had an experience of a, a, a very strange, almost reverse experience that most people have with college i got sort of uh, I got exposed to what uh, a segregated, very homogeneous community looks like uh, for the first time at the age of seventeen going to school um, so it was it was shocking. Uh, I also noticed i was uh, I was ill prepared uh, just for the the rigor of the academics. Um, you know, I went to a big public high school in New York City and I did well, uh, but i I was not prepared for, uh, for collegiate, the the collegiate level education. And so those things stuck out to me, um, in a big way.
0: How did it show? I mean, were there things that showed up, you know, in, in terms of the race conversation for you? Like, was there some, one of the stories I was told about how, like somebody else I had on was talking about, Hey, they would get looked at until they found out they were an athlete. And then it was like, Oh, now we understand why you're here. I mean, are there any stories, like, just to understand, right, my experience, I could, I could do whatever I wanted on my college campus, and it was irrelevant. Yeah. Was there anything that you noticed, like, the different experience between you and other students?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember being told by um, one student advisor where all the black students hung out, you know, just to give me a suggestion of where I should go hang out, basically. Um <laughs> You know, the other thing was that uh, I had played some basketball and football in in high school, and I wanted to try something different. And so I, you know, I just on a whim tried out for the rowing team in college because I, I I don't know any different, right? And I went and tried it, and almost everybody I talked to, black or white or anything in between, is like, "Wow, like black people don't do that." You know, black people don't play, don't don't row. You know, and. And, you know they, I had no experience with rowing but, uh, but it was there and I figured I wanted to try something new so and I also was too small to play basketball or football in college so so it, made, it was easier for me to make that choice but but I didn't have any any sense of what rowing even was but that the whole community seemed to have this this clear idea that I shouldn't be doing that or that's not for me was stark was, was made explicitly clear for me
0: And and I know this because just how well I know you at this point, but at one point you were like a snowboard instructor and you were, right, you were, was it ski or snow, snowboarding, right? Yeah. And I just, that just popped into my head because that is like, you want to talk about like white environments, right? Like skiing, snowboarding are are traditionally white environments. Yeah. What was that? Like you had to, I mean, I mean, you're pretty covered up, right? When you're doing that. But how did that, was there any situations there where it was like, (laughs) that you recall? that occurs different or stand
1: out? You know, I'll be honest that, well, I have to, I first have to address how I got into that because my experience with, with rowing in particular showed me that, that when I'm told I can't do something, it taught me something about myself when I'm told I can't or shouldn't do something, I, I want to go do it even more. And in our language, that's mm-hmm. part of my survival mechanism, but, but it had me actually be a sort of a fuck you. Like I'm going to do this anyway, just even because you told me not to. So. You know, sure. when I was in college, some people that I knew were going ski, snowboarding and I went with them because I had never tried it before. And I took a lesson and liked it. Um, but again, the message I got was, yeah, there are no black people doing this. Black people don't do this. Black people don't snowboard. And my black friends said it. My white friends said it. You know, everybody said this. So, you know, a little thing in the back of my head said, well, fuck you. I'm going to go do that, too. And so, yeah, after uh, after some time I spent working in finance after school and, uh, and after leaving finance and traveling for a year, another thing that black people don't do, um, is, uh, I actually went and decided to go be a snowboard instructor. Again, it was, part of it was from that screw you, you, you know, I'm going to do it because you said I can't. So I got into it a little bit from, um, you know, wanting to, to do something that I was told I can't, but you know, I, then I took instructor school. I got good at it. I took instructor school. I'm pretty athletic. So I was able to t- pick it up pretty quickly. I'm also good at teaching. And I'm, I'm good at explaining things to people, so so I w- I actually ended up being good at it. And then they made me the uh, the head of the instructor school at Killington, um, and so I ran the kids program, the kids snowboarding program at Killington. So I was in charge of all these instructors. So yeah, it was an interesting situation where you had you know the black snowboard instructor there because there were no other ones um, teaching all these uh, all these white snowboard instructors who were also about ten years younger than me um, how to teach you know, how to, how to snowboard better, like, you know, how to teach kids, how to teach people how to snowboard. So it was a, it was a very interesting few years of my life where I was, I was very much, um, the minority, like by a long shot and, you know, being up in Vermont and, you know, in a white community also. So, uh, that's how I got into it. I loved it to be honest with you. I love the sport too. It was fun. Um, but you know, the honest truth is that the experience was kind of lonely, you know? I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of, connecting on a, on a level that had anything to do with culture. Uh, most of it was just around the act of snowboarding, if that makes sense.
0: You just brought up a whole bunch of things, like things black people don't do, things white people do, right? Like these, these stereotypes we have. Yeah. And, it got, and as you were saying it, it made me think about, and you, also, you actually said there were two things that got me thinking, so I, want, I don't know exactly how I want to address them, but I'm curious your thoughts on them. The second one is how you rose to the top in a field that was predominantly white. And I noticed that when I'm in conversations, me and you have talked about this, like we're in conversations with people that we know are quote unquote, like good people. They're not like the people we'd point at and go, you're a racist. But they're people that they have blinders on. They wanna deny that racism exists. Maybe they don't see it. They don't wanna ask questions. and they point to things like well look mark you're the head of a program that's predominantly white you know you rose to the top of that you're that you became the top ski or snowboarding instructor you were in finance you went to college and they use you or obama or oprah or michael jordan or like who right whoever as evidence of why it doesn't exist mm-hmm. i'm curious about your thought like Your personal thoughts on that? Like what like how do you address those things with people? What do you think
1: and how does it feel? Yeah, it's a few questions in there. So, you know, again, my initial reaction to it is I'm gonna go do that because you said I can't. That's sort of my internal reaction to it. But the, you know, this going back to an earlier question you asked, um, one of the things my parents taught me as a survival skill was that you're gonna have to outwork all the people around you too, you know. Like wherever they stop, you go twice as far because, you know, in order for you to actually get what they have or to, to be successful, you're going to have to outwork them. Um, if you just go show up, show up equal to them, then you're going to miss out and be looked over. So <clears throat> I learned at a very early age to work hard and, and how, to, how to deal with discomfort and not have it matter so much. So I learned to outwork people you know, just to be, just to be frank. And that was another survival skill. So it showed up in all these, all these places. Like I just outworked people with regards to how, uh, how much outreach I did, how much studying I did, or how much, how hard I worked, you know, just even in the gym, just training. Um, but, but hours of, of time on the, on the, on the board even, and and taking extra lessons on how to, how to become a good instructor. So, you know, how that happens, I think, is a function of what we're taught, you know, about about how what, what success means and how to be successful, but also about how to address fear. You know, one of the options when told black people don't do that is to say, oh, well, you know, I don't want anything to do with that because the people doing that don't look like me. And so my mother and my, my father both were, were very clear that you're going to have to be willing to be scared and go do stuff anyway. And that's just, that's just going to be your life. You got to forget about the idea that that's, there's something other than that as an option. And that was, that was terrifying as a kid, (laughs) you know, but I've realized that that's one of the biggest gifts they've given me now as an adult. Uh, so yeah, what I think about that is that it's, it's sad that there are those stories that these are things white people don't do. Um, you know, uh, I, I happen to be a certified, uh, rescue diver also scuba diver, because I was told that that's something that, that black people don't do. Um, and, and I, but I sought those things out because people told me that I couldn't or shouldn't, or that's not for me. And I ended up enjoying them, but, but my experience of it is that, you know, there's, it, it's lonely, you know, it's just, you know, there's, there's no, there's not a whole lot of um, of understanding of why I would do it. You know, people I think are sort of assumed that I, I either uh, I either want to assimilate and 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 sort of act like white people, or people assume that I don't get it somehow. Like you know that that I should understand better that this isn't for me, <laughs> and so you know I have to sort of make sure that I'm walking this path based upon what I see and really ignore what all those other folks are saying, because otherwise I wouldn't have done much. You know mm-hmm. like, we wouldn't have have as much to talk about today because uh, so many of those things are domains that that were left specifically for white people and created for white people and or are, you know, dominated by white people. And, and if I bought into that story, then there are very few things that I would have been left able to actually go out and do to, with my life. So I think that's tragic. How it feels is, um, it feels constrictive. You know, uh, I, I think I was, I was lucky that my parents taught me to, to sort of go do it anyway. But you know, it, it makes me sad that there are people, you know, black people that are, that are taught not to do that. And they don't. Um, and it feels good. i would be honest with you. It feels good to be in some ways, the person breaking that mold. Like I've learned to, when people look at me strange when I'm doing something that that only white people do, I've learned to enjoy that experience. <laughs> I, I learned to enjoy their discomfort in some level and also leverage it. Like, you know, like, especially as a trainer and leading, leading people, uh, in becoming better leaders, you know, using discomfort and using, um, you know, the, the the ideas, the predetermined ideas people have about me has been an opportunity for me. So, you know, how I feel about it differs, though, to be honest. You know, sometimes it pisses me off, to be frank. And, and sometimes I, I relate to it as just the way it is, and I just have to go deal with it.
0: The the second part, right, is when we you get used, not you specifically, but someone like you could get easily used as like, well, look, Mark's race has never stopped him, right? He, he gets to the top of everything. And, you know, when people point out there isn't a systematic oppression or racism, because look, Obama was president and Oprah is one of the most successful people. And, you know, and then, hey, look, I'm going to bring it in now. But like, here's this woman, Candace Owens, who's telling you that it's all a farce, right. like I mean, how do you? How do we even address, like, from your perspective? And I really feel comfortable bringing this to you because I really see you as a leader. It's not this is this is part of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we? How do we address those things? How do we talk about those things? What do we say to the, the the person that comes in, like the Candace Owens? It's like, no white people,
1: you're. This is not. You know, I I don't even know how to. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting one. Well, let me let me address the first one first because when people tell me, um, "Well, look, Obama became president; you had a black president," you know, Oprah's famous, so you know, so basically, you've arrived. Let's you know, we've we've reached equanimity, and you know, quit bitching when people say that kind of thing to me. Uh, I reflect that the fact that they needed to point out these folks and that they have the names of two or three people that they can identify is the problem. You know we'll actually re- reach equanimity when you aren't defining those successes by the color of my skin. think like that's the thing that, that I, that's the thing I say to people. And I don't say it as nicely as I just said it to you either, but, but it's, it's, it's actually something that I, I think is, is problematic because those examples get used too often as examples of we're already, we've arrived. And even recently in, in the past couple of weeks, you know, with the NFL commissioner acknowledging that racism exists, I mean, People are celebrating that—that—that's that, ridiculous. That—that—that that, that he's in 2020, distinguishing for the first time. Oh my goodness, racism does exist. Like these are not wins. These are steps in a path to a win, but by no means are the, is this the end or the finish line. And so I, I reflect that to folks, and I let them know that you know that you know the names of a few people that look like me that have done that is the problem. You know, I can't name all the successful white people, <laughs> you know, who've made it and who've, who've been successful because, because that's related to as normal. My success and Obama's success and Oprah Winfrey's, Winfrey's success are related to as as being black swans or some, you know, some anomaly or some win, but it's because there's a problem with us getting there. And there's a problem with the opportunities for us arriving there. So that's the conversation I have with those folks when they say that. Yeah. And then you brought up Candice, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no,
0: I think that's, it's it's really nice. I mean, I'm glad I asked you because this is the, I think people people don't know what, like people don't always have a really um, a really great, you know, in the world we live in, everybody's just fighting with each other, right? Everything's a debate, everything's win or lose. And people are just trying to convince, and I think what you just shared is just—it's um, actually really simple, but it also makes a lot of sense when you say it. Like I just, what I—I I was, I'm writing notes. I always do when I'm podcasting. But I'm like, oh yeah, like all the successful white people are normal, and you know the black people because it is right. It, it'd be like, it's like the one person who wins the MVP. That's like the closer in baseball. Like they're not supposed to do that. That's why we know who they are. Yeah. Um, Right. Like why we know, look, it's even why we think when we look at the NBA, why is somebody like Dirk Nowinski and Larry Bird such a big deal? Because they were the, they, they've been the anomalies.
1: Yeah. Or in the music industry, Eminem and the Beastie Boys, like they are the anomalies and we know we know about them because they don't look like everybody else. Yeah. yeah.
0: Let's talk about the, like the, cause Candace Owens isn't the only one, right? You got like people like Candace Owens, you have like someone like Ben Carson, these people that show up that are, some of them are Ben Carson's very successful, right? Like these people that have done extraordinary things and then they, they are say and do things that say these things don't exist. Um, And, and often white people use these things to go, well, look, look at this. Or even if they don't know, I saw somebody the other day that, that, um, A guy that I know who was like, "Man, I've never heard this argument before. It's interesting." And uh, what are your? Let's talk about that for a minute. (laughs) I feel like I I just loaded up a uh, a cannon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man, that's a tough one. Uh, You know, if we look at sort of at Candace Owens, for example, my my is that um, that what she is is actually opportunistic. You know, uh, she has a platform. Uh, and she has the ability to bring people together. Uh, but instead she's creating more division and she's leaning to, in a place where she can be uh, you know, a unicorn because as a unicorn there, she knows she's going to get used. She's going to get used in a way that's going to build her brand. That's going to have her be, you know, be rising up in the, in the ranks there because people can use her to sort of deflate or distract from, conversations happening in the black community so I relate to that simply as a um, a transactional opportunistic move that she's doing uh, I, I can't take seriously much of what she says you know I, I have a visceral reaction to some of it and it's it's because she's black and and some of the things she's saying are simply are, are just factually inaccurate but but I think that white people are using that and and especially the right and in the pol- in the political field uh, are using that her specifically because She's black, and she makes other white people comfortable.
0: Yeah.
1: And oh, look, there's a black person actually saying the things that I believe. Oh, I must be right. And I think that's really what's going on. Um, you know, look, if she was a white person saying all those things, you know, she'd be she'd be drowned out in the, in the, with, with all the other noise. Um, because all you know, because there's there's just too much of that already happening. If she's a black person saying what other black people are saying, then she'd also be you know. A, one of many people saying that so there's a way to become special and to sort of gain notoriety by almost becoming you know the uh the anti-hero the the um you know the person that's going to say the controversial thing just to get the um just to get the 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 hits or the likes or or the accolades even if it's from you know from people that don't look like you or people that you know that, that don't really care about you. And I think th- that's what's actually going on. But I, don't, I, I can't even tell how much she really believes with what she's saying. Maybe she does, and I, I don't know her personally, so I can't judge, mm-hmm. right? But, but the way she's doing it and the way she's being used seems like it's part of a design, not something that's happening by accident just because she happens to be out there sharing what she really believes. And I think it's sad. To be honest with you, it just makes me, it makes me sad for her. Uh, I, 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 it makes me sad for the people using her, like people actually, you know, reposting her videos and, uh, and, and saying, see, listen to this black person. Don't listen to all those other black people. Listen to this one. Uh, okay. it makes me sad for them too, because they're, they're missing the entire point. doesn't mean that she doesn't have a valid point or two in there somewhere, but, but that's not why people are looking to her. They're looking to her because she disproves something that they desperately want to disprove.
0: Hmm. What about your like personal? You know, I said to you at the beginning of this, um, I'm curious how it impacts you, like on the people around you, closest to you. You know, I could say like, where am I racist? Where, where are? Where do you find that you have white clients that are, or companies that work with you, or friends? You know, so, like your closest colleagues that I know are most of them are white. Um, aside from me, you don't have to name names, but uh, I'm I'm curious, like, where does it show up in the in these very subtle unconscious ways um, that we're not aware of.
1: Yeah. You know, I think the most um, subtle way it shows up is in lighthearted jokes, you know, like, like uh, that occur as playful, but are, um, but are using the topic of race and the topic of the, the, the fact that I'm the only black person there as part of the joke. It shows up that way. And they're not, they're not necessarily mean jokes, but that's not the point. The point is that they're they're jokes that are leveraging the um, the fact that uh, that I'm I'm a minority in a very non diverse population. And look, you know, to be fair, in in a lot of those situations, I laugh along with it because it's not the time, doesn't feel like the time or the place to address it and sort of you know unpack it. And that code switching thing I talked about earlier, it becomes insidious. You know, it's a it's a valuable tool for survival, but Having practiced it for 49 years, I don't even know when I'm doing it anymore. To be transparent, that, that, that makes me heartbroken to even know that I do that and, and to have to acknowledge it. But, but code switching becomes something that you do without knowing it. And so I can even fall into the trap of laughing along with those jokes. And then I become complicit. So that's how, that's how most of it shows up. You know, it shows up in other things like, you know, it's things that had happened sort of unintentionally being excluded from things or... Um, uh, you know, being related to certain ways. Like if there's a, an issue with, uh, another black person being asked, you know, Hey, you know, you know, you should know what we should do, (laughs) that kind of thing. You know, it's just, it's, it's all these insidious ways that on the surface look innocent when they're happening, but are built on the foundation that I'm different. And that's, that's just broken, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But, but, you know, the place closest to me is my father right now. My mother passed away long time a long time ago when i was 20 but my dad's alive now you know he's 79 years old and he uh he's worried about my my brother and i you know and we're grown men i'm 49 my brother's 45 he's scared you know and and that that makes me uh, and i shared this with uh, our our leadership team in dc this weekend um that in particular makes me furious like you know I, my own safety my own comfort you know i've learned to sort of uh deal with the fact that those things aren't, aren't necessarily in my control and that's okay. You know, I've, I've learned to be with that, but, but then my dad, you know, survived all that crap in, uh, in the South in the forties, fifties, and sixties. And, and today, you know, in 2020 is concerned about his grown sons and our safety on a daily basis. You know, on, on Friday, I got a bunch of texts from him while I was in the middle of doing something. I couldn't stop to text him back and he got freaked out and he got worried. And I noticed that in the moment, I was just like, calmed him down, but it made, I couldn't sleep the night after because I was mostly furious at the fact that my dad is still scared about the fact that I'm a black man walking around the world and, and I'm unsafe and he knows it. And that he still knows that and has to worry about that. That's the thing I think that bothers me the most. Yeah, that's really... <laughs> I'm just thinking about how like
0: all parents worry about their kids. Right? But why do they worry about them? Exactly. You know, what's yeah. the reason? Of course, your dad would worry about you as a human being and having sons. But, like, the reason he's worried about you is, like, not an acceptable reason. Right. It's not, uh, you know, because you're out partying, drinking, living a crazy lifestyle. You know, it's it's like because you're just living your life normally. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, you shared with me when we talked the first time that you felt like you wouldn't see anything like really changed in your lifetime mm-hmm. that you're you're a stand for it to change and but you don't know that it will yeah. and we, we kind of talked about that uh and i actually got to share that with somebody but through right i'm passing through me what i learned from that i'm curious for you to talk about that like yeah what that means in the sense of, cause I know for me a lot, if I, if I hadn't been working with you and if I hadn't done all the work I've been doing over the last six years, if I don't believe in something, what's the point? Why don't I, why do I even? So in times like this, where, where, where it sometimes feels hopeless. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it will change. How do people like you, like me, that wants what, that want it to be better for everyone, you know, that specifically right now, it's like, hey, let's make it better for black people. But we, but ultimately, okay, then what's the next group? And what's, and like, it ultimately has to be all of us in the end. How do we, how, what does that mean, like, for you to stand even when you don't know that you'll ever see
1: it? Unfortunately, I've been trained in this a lot just through life. You know, the statistics said that I wouldn't live to 25. And so I had to, but I had to get up and go to school anyway. So on some level, I got trained in that, that way of standing in the face of the impossible just by living. But, but I think it may change. I just don't know that I will actually live to see it in my lifetime. And that's because uh, I, don't have a, I don't actually experience this country as willing to truly face its appetite for power and control uh, and keeping that power control the way it is, and until we until the, they face this, uh, I don't think this is going to change. And facing that means, I mean, look, let's be honest. Like, if you have all the power, why would you give it up? If you have all the privilege, why would you give it up? I mean, it's a nice thing to do, perhaps from that point of view. I can't imagine, right? But 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 to be willing to give that up and share that equally with everybody else is that's a big ex- expectation, and that's a big. You have to have a big heart and a big willingness to actually to, to, to relinquish power uh, and control. And I don't know many human beings want to do that. And this country is an echo chamber of its own crap, unwilling to look at uh, the violence of its past and own it, including the very fact that we occupy this, this land, um, and unwilling to own that, that, no, it's not over, and we shouldn't be over it yet, uh, and that we still need to talk about what happened and not be done with it, and just look forward uh, and until the country's willing to do that, which I don't know when they'll be willing to do uh, I don't think that that anything's going to change and and look to be honest I, I it's it's something that if i if I didn't keep trying to make a difference for and didn't keep trying to affect uh, would mean just giving up and would mean sort of um, rolling over and i don't uh, you know it's not in my nature to do that, but it's also something that you know, I think about my nephews. I don't have kids, but I have two, I have two little nephews and I think about my responsibility to them. You know, my responsibility to them is, is bigger than just my willingness to or desire to sort of live a comfortable rest of my life. So yeah, I think these uncomfortable conversations need to keep having. I think that's keep being had. And I think that's why, uh, that's why I keep going because, Hey, you know, if I train enough leaders and enough people see me leading in front of those rooms, maybe it makes enough of a difference for people that, that you know, critical mass is met in this country. And I think we're heading in that direction, but we are very, very far from there.
0: Yeah. Um, is there anything you want to, that I didn't cover, that I didn't ask, that you want to put in that you feel like got missed or stepped
1: over? Um, you know, I, the only thing is that, that I've been uh, I've been asked almost constantly these past couple weeks, which what can I do? What can I do by people, white people, black people, all people Been asking me, you know, what what should they do? I don't have a good answer for that question. Uh, unfortunately, I wish I did. Um, but I think that the, the thing I've been saying to people is do something, but have it be an informed doing. Right. Uh, I think going out in the streets and protesting is great. Keep it up. But we have to remember that this is a marathon and not a sprint. So there has to be some energy that's going to be expended in a way that it can, it can be scalable and sustainable over years, right? This is not going to be won in the next, in the re, over the rest of this summer the next few weeks. This is going to be some, a, a, a challenge that's fought and that's won uh, because enough people are outraged enough and are willing to maintain uh, their own discomfort and the discomfort of those around them until we reach critical mass. And so the, the answer to the question what to do, I think, is to do something. Keep asking questions like you're asking. You know, like that you created this is the answer to the question what you should do, right? Um, you know, have this conversation with white people too. You know, like ask them about their experiences of this and who they're going to be in the matter. Uh, you know, especially, you know, challenge your white friends who don't believe that, that uh, systemic racism exists. Challenge your friends that don't think that they have white privilege, that it's just a construct of the left or whatever. Have the conversations with them so that, you know, look, it's gonna be uncomfortable, but if you don't have those conversations, then everybody just stays where they are. And in a few weeks, this will all blow over and we'll all get back to work and, you know, forget about it.
0: Mark, thank you so much. Um, You know, you, I, you know, I I chose to work with you uh, like three years ago or whatever it was, because I said you were, you know, you were the man that I wanted to be. Um, And I, I, you know, and for people that, you know, people know you a lot more now, you're actually on, um, I don't know, one of the first 10 episodes I probably ever did of this podcast We're almost like 200 or so, I don't know, 150 or so later, um, two years though. Uh, I'm just, I'm super grateful for you. For you continuing to show up, and when I say the man I want to be, it's like integrity, courage, commitment, um, eloquence, you know, power. You, you should you bring it everywhere, all the time. Um, but you also bring a lot of heart, uh, and you bring a lot of caring, and you bring a lot of understanding. Thanks for sharing that here today. Thanks for opening up and just telling us about your life and your thoughts. And um, yeah, and co-creating this. Help. Thanks for helping me create this this medium, not just the podcast. I mean, we were working together when I did that, but like, you know, me saying, I don't know what to do. And I don't, you know, I'm, I love the idea that like, Hey, you're probably not going to go protest for every day for the next five years. So for me, it's like, what could I do? Well, this is a way. And I, and I love that you're pointing to, Hey, bring on white people, talk to them too. So thanks for helping me evolve this and, and myself over all this time.
1: Thanks Alex. Hey, look, thank you for having me here, but, but thank you for having this conversation because you know, this is what's needed. This is a sustainable medium. This is a st- sustainable conversation over years to our point. So, you know, thank you so much for for, uh, for making this happen.
0: Mark, if people want to find you, talk to you, whether it be about this or other things, what's the best way for them to
1: find you? Yeah, my website is uh, pinnacle-coaching.net. And that dash is like a minus sign, pinnacle-coaching.net. And uh, they can reach me there. My email address is mark at pinnacle-coaching.net. I'll put it on in the show notes too. Mark, thanks again. Thanks, man. See you soon.
0: Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream, and I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves.